Why don't we turn on our Bibles once again back to the book of Proverbs. This evening we pick up once again in chapter 19. Didn't get out of the 19th chapter last time. We went down as far as verse 21 was where we, uh, the last verse we covered where he said in Proverbs 19.21, there are many plans in a man's heart, nevertheless the Lord's counsel that will stand. And that was the kind of final verse we finished off with last time, uh, which brings us to verse 22 as we kind of carry onward here in this workshop of God's wisdom. We're working our way through verse 22 of Proverbs 19. The writer says, what is desired in a man is kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. So the idea here in verse 22 seems to be indicating what is a reality that the main thing that most people want uh, in this life as far as relational interactions typically is just to be, we might say, treated well. He says here, what is desired in a man, in a person, in a woman, the idea is what's desired is just kindness. You know, I think many a times the simplest thing that we are just all longing for is just to encounter relational experiences with someone who would just be kind, would be caring, would show a degree of courtesy and concern, and, and we just kind of long for that. And he says here in our verse, that's what's desired when we look for such in another person. And he says, the end of verse 22, that a poor man, that is one who has no resources, has nothing to be able to contribute or to offer, is still better than someone who's a liar. And of course, probably one of the greatest you might say opposites of kindness would be someone who's lying to you, someone who's going to take advantage of you, deceive you in some way. To lie to someone is a great unkindness. It's a very rude and hurtful thing to do. So he says, you know, better to have less because treat people, you know, you want to treat people well. And I think this maybe connects to the idea of kindness. Better to just be poor, to have less in some way than to lie and take advantage of people in some unkind way. Uh, he says it would be much better to just go with less and to be someone who's just honest and shows kindness in the way you interact with others. Verse 23, he says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction, and he will not be visited with evil. So here the idea is trying to imply that the wise person understands that to live with the fear of the Lord, and we've talked before, a fear of the Lord just speaks of a healthy reverence for God. Not fear in the sense of intimidation or kind of walking around on eggshells because you're afraid that you know God's like this judge or policeman in the sky who's just looking to kind of come down harshly and lower the hammer. That's not the idea. The fear of the Lord just means a a healthy reverence, a respect for God, his authority, and his power. And to live in such a way with a healthy reverence of God, the Bible tells us here, is a very beneficial way to operate as a person. And here he mentions some of the benefits of living with the fear of the Lord, that it leads to life. The idea is to the impartation of life, the sustaining of life, the renewal of a life rather than the destruction or ruin in some way of our life. It also, it says, brings about the ability to be able to abide, which means to remain or to continue in satisfaction. So to have a fear of the Lord in our life, it brings about a good quality of life, 
The Bible says that when we live in the fear of the Lord, it helps us to experience satisfaction. We might say a fulfilled life rather than being always dissatisfied and unfulfilled. And so many people live sadly in a continuous state of being dissatisfied all the time. And notice that's connected to in God's word, simply having a right relationship with the Lord. It is truly amazing, whether we can explain it or not, that one of the things we noticed very early on when we first came into a relationship with the Lord was that we found this inner degree of contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment. Because really our whole life, the problem was is that we were longing for something that was missing inside of us. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we literally are created, in a sense, with a, a God-shaped void, you might say, inside of our lives. It's like if it's a, if it's a round, uh, you know, kind of void within us, we spend our whole life, well, I should say our whole life, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later for all of us, but we spend a good portion of our life prior to coming into a relationship with the Lord, and we continue to keep trying to put different kinds of square pegs in that round hole. And we're just longing for satisfaction. We were intended for a relationship with God, and ultimately it's only in God that we experience full satisfaction, full fulfillment when we come into right relationship with him. But we try all these other things, and there's a part of us that's always chronically just dissatisfied and unfulfilled. And so we try all these different things in life, and none of them ever work. And then all of a sudden, when we come into the fear of the Lord, and we reverence God, and we come into a relationship with God, all of a sudden we find, man, finally, I just sense a degree of fulfillment in my life now. I feel a degree of satisfaction and kind of that striving that we do so much of our life kind of comes to an end. And he says, not only does it give a degree of fulfillment and satisfaction, which is wonderful, but living in the fear of the Lord also, notice, it also preserves and protects us from experiencing all types of evil and harmful things that we would otherwise be getting ourselves into. It helps us to avoid evil experiences in many ways because as we live in the fear of the Lord, we're now steering clear from all the wrong things that maybe we were doing before, that were getting us into all types of evil, problematic traps and difficulties. And he says, the fear of the Lord, another blessing, is it keeps our lives from being visited by all the evil and bad experiences of when we live a self-directed life, kind of rebelling against relationship with God. A lazy man, verse 24, comes back to this repeated theme all throughout Proverbs. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Now, just this past Saturday, uh, when we did our most recent session and the, the basic uh, that we, boot camp kind of thing that we've been doing with the guys, we talked about discipline, and we looked at all this multitude of verses that dealt with one aspect of discipline, which is the idea of not being lazy and being productive and so forth, and we ran through all these different Proverbs. This was one of them, of course, because it speaks to great degree about laziness. And I mentioned how some of the statements that God makes about laziness, I mean, it's kind of hard to miss. It's almost as if God has a complete sense of humor. I mean, if you, if you just really contemplate the picture that's being portrayed there, someone being so lazy that they stick their hand down into the popcorn bowl, and they are so lazy that they can't even, after they grab the popcorn, they won't even lift it up to their own mouth and put it in there. You know, it's like sitting on the couch next to your spouse and sticking your hand down into the chip bowl or the popcorn bowl and saying, honey, I just can't do it. Would you just put a chip in my mouth? 
would you just throw some popcorn in there? I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's a pretty sad picture of human laziness. I mean, but I guess God knows to what degree uh, we really can descend to in human laziness. And human laziness is really rooted in selfishness if we really want to be candid about what laziness really is. It's really just rooted in our human selfishness because laziness becomes a thing that causes us to just not be productive, do what we should, depend upon others, right? Be a burden on people rather than be a blessing, be someone who's always taking from others rather than contributing what we should responsibly in our own kind of responsible, productive behavior. And I mean, what a picture here of laziness. The lazy man buries his hand down in the bowl and he won't even so much as bring it to his mouth Again, a picture of being so lazy that a man will not even properly take care of oneself, but just wants others around him to always cater to him and always take care of him, even to the point of feeding him chips from the chip bowl. What a sad picture and shows you how dangerous laziness really can be if it's left unchecked in any one of our lives. Chapter uh, 19, verse 25, he then says, strike a scoffer and the simple will become wary, the idea is concerned or alarmed, rebuke one who has understanding, the contrast, and he will discern knowledge. Now notice verse 25 kind of portrays this idea that you can tell a whole lot about a person's condition by what it takes for them to change. And this seems to be the idea of the proverb. You can really tell a whole lot about someone's condition by what does it take for them to to change. And the reality is we all from time to time need to change. We need to make turns if we're going in the wrong direction. We need to make a change if we're you know, doing something we should not, or maybe we need to make a change if we're not doing something that we should be doing. This is what the Bible speaks of, the concept of repentance. And repentance just means a 180 degree turn. It means a change of mind, which leads to a change of direction. Repentance isn't something we talk about, it's something that we do, it's something that's seen. And so we all, to different degrees, sometimes it's a big change, sometimes it's maybe just a minor change or adjustment, but change is a healthy, normal part of life, and we can tell a whole lot about our own condition or another person's condition by what does it take to get them to change. And the first half of the proverb He speaks in some degrees about the scoffer. We might refer to that person as sort of the hard-headed fool. The person who mocks and scoffs and doesn't want to listen to others and refuses to change and they scoff at truth and they dismiss everyone. And so he says, you have to strike a scoffer and the simple will become weary. So when someone's a hard-headed fool, sometimes they don't even respond to pain. And that you can tell a whole lot about a person when literally they can go through painful, difficult hardships And they can go through real painful things, and they still won't change. And that tells you a whole lot about the condition that they're in, because he says the second part of that verse there, even the simple will become wary. The idea is that someone who we might say is just a naive, simple person can watch this hard-headed fool suffering pain and hardship for their dumb decisions, and they can take the correspondence course and say, you know what, I don't want to do what that guy's doing. And they can learn by just watching someone else go through hardship by simply paying attention. And then he goes on to say, rebuke, however, one who has understanding. So the understanding person 
If you reprove them, you confront them about what they're doing wrong, you bring to their attention something they need to change, you can tell a whole lot about their character of being an understanding person because if you just rebuke or reprove them, they will discern knowledge. Hey, thank you for pointing out my error to me. Thank you for showing me what I was doing wrong or the change that I need to make. And they appreciate it and they're receptive to it. And so it shows a lot about their condition when you see their willingness to change and their actual appreciation to have something pointed out to them that maybe they should make a change of. Verse 26, he goes back to this idea of parent-child relationships. He says, he who mistreats his father and chases away his mother, interesting, it almost sense the greater degree of emotional tenderness with the mom there. Mistreat the father, but chasing away the mother. Again, the idea is, you know, hurting and wounding her spirit to such a degree, mistreating one's father, chasing away one's mother, the Bible says, is a son who causes shame and brings about reproach. So those who, contrary to what the Bible teaches, which is to honor our mother and father. He says here, those children who dishonor and disrespect their parents to the point of actually driving them out of their lives, mistreating them and hurting them to a degree where literally they chase away, he says, actually chase away, drive away their parents, end up doing, he says, a very shameful thing and cause people to bring reproach upon them. The idea is they cause people to greatly dislike them. Because people look at that and they see it as a disgrace and it really, really tarnishes the attitude that people will have towards you. Verse 27, cease listening to instruction, my son, he says, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. So again, the wise person realizes that a major key to staying on track is continually listening to instruction, realizing no matter who I am, what stage of life I'm in, there are always things to learn. There are always people who can impart knowledge or maybe that I need to take instruction from, whether it's a supervisor or someone in authority in civil you know, life or in professional life or in school, that there's always someone who may need to instruct me or to guide me. And he says to the younger man here, this is the idea of this father speaking to his son, he says, if you cease listening to instruction, my son, in other words, if you become proud and hard-headed and you come to this place where you stop listening to people's instruction in your life, then he says, look, let me tell you where you're headed towards. He says, you will stray. You're going to stray from words of knowledge. If you no longer want the knowledge that other people can instruct you with, he says, then plan what's going to happen. If you won't listen to guidance, you are going to stray off path. It's going to happen. And so many times, if we rewind and look back at the history of times when we ourselves or others strayed from words of just good knowledge and direction, it was because something began to transpire. We just stopped listening to people, right? We just ceased listening to instruction. A child stops listening to their parents. They start becoming rebellious. And what happens? Usually not good things, right? They end up getting off course, getting in trouble. And, and so again, whether it's in that parent-child relationship or any capacity, once we stop listening to others' instruction, we end up straying off course from the words of good knowledge that would help us to stay on track in life. Verse 28, he says, a disreputable witness scorns justice, that is, they mock, they have a, a despisal towards justice, or we might say the justice system, 
and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. So here, kind of the picture seems to be there are some who honestly do have no regard for what's right, and there are those as well. The proverb seems to convey scorning justice, those who have no regard for, we might say, the justice system. And the Bible says here, look, if someone is always bad-mouthing those in authority, if someone is always disrespecting and rebellious in their heart and they enjoy wrongdoing and they like to buck the system and be rebellious against authority and mock the judicial system and you know dislike police, he says, look, let me give you a recommendation. He says, stay away from those people. People like that are not healthy. People who are re- rebels in heart towards what is authority in life, he says, they are not healthy people to interact with. They're rebels at heart and they are going to take you down a path of rebellion by the very way that they talk. If you just kind of sense, man, this person always seems to be complaining about this authority or criticizing the police department, or just be careful, God says. People like that are just, they're not good companions. They're individuals who are rebellious in their hearts. Verse 29, he says, judgments are prepared instead for scoffers. So when someone's a scoffer, behaving foolishly. They mock what's right. They disregard input. He says they are preparing themselves for a path of judgment and beatings for the backs of fools. So again, that's, that's what ends up transpiring. They're creating their own course of severe judgment. By foolish behavior and mockery, some people keep on doing hardship and suffering. They're always finding themselves kind of, you know, abused and hurt in some way. And the reason is life is hard because they keep creating their own personal hardships. <laughs> he says, beatings are for the backs of fools. You know I mean? Again, the time that I, short period of time, got to serve as a, as a police chaplain with the police department, you know, you, you begin to see the, you know, the, the repeat offenders and the people who you're continuing to go to the same addresses. And, and you almost begin to recognize, like, man, are you a glutton for punishment, dude? <laughs> I mean, like, like, how many times? And it's almost, I, I read this proverb, and it kind of reminds me, you know, beatings are for the backs of fools. And, you know, just, you're seeing this, like this constant recurring theme, like, why do you keep doing the same foolish things again and again and again and end up bringing harm and punishment upon yourself? But again, life is hard. So wise people learn from things. And the proverb kind of conveys wise people learn from things in such a way where they do what they can to avoid making life that's already hard even harder. So, so the wise person realizes, you know, life's already hard. I don't want to add more beatdowns in my life. I don't want to make things more difficult for myself. So they, they, they pay attention. Hey, what can I do to try and avoid making more hardship and bringing more pain into my own life? That's a mark of wisdom in contrast to foolishness. Chapter 20, verse 1, he says, wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So here we have a caution, a strong caution of the unwise, we might say, overindulgence of alcohol that the Bible says leads at times so often to foolish conduct, whether it's wine being a mocker, again, thinking and talking in ways that are foolish, and therefore it makes a mockery of you publicly, And you cause people to mock you, and it makes a mockery of your reputation because you're thinking and talking like a fool because you've been led astray 
and you're now under the indulgence and your thoughts and your words are under the indulgence, you're being led astray in your words. Or he says also strong drink, boy, isn't this fitting? Strong drink is a brawler. Why, do we, why are we so shocked we, we, we think about bar fights? Do you know why there's so many bar fights? Because when people are being led away by alcohol and they're under the you know, influence of, of that substance, it causes, and particularly among males, you know, again, I don't want to be stereotypical, but typically from my place of observation, typically it seems, you know, that when males are under the influence of alcohol and being led astray, there's kind of, that's where the male bravado comes out and, you know, start mouthing off and getting arrogant and contentious and kind of challenging one another. And then it causes people to enter into fights. And it causes people to you know, enter into even brawls and, you know, just kind of a, a sad thing to be led away, he says, by alcohol. It's, it, it's not wise. The real foolishness is when we allow ourselves to be led away under the influence of it. And most biblical references, and you can search the Bible for yourself, most biblical references to indulging alcohol are typically always given in a negative light. You don't find many verses that say, indulge wine, enjoy strong drinks, You'll always be peaceful, and you'll never be led astray, and you'll be extra wise. You don't find Proverbs like, you find Proverbs like this, <laughs> that, that say things like, you know, you drink too much wine, you become led astray by it, you're going to say and act and do things where you're going to make a mockery of yourself. You're going to end up getting into brawls and fights and doing things because of your mouth or the way you behave because you're being led astray by it. You know, it just... I mean, I hate to say, but it's the bottom line reality. Just recently, my wife and I were, uh, you know, at her, her work party and, you know, they're free alcoholic beverages. And, and I told her before we go, look, here's how this is. We're going to go there. We're going to eat dinner. We're going to do the thing that we need to do. And, and when we get to a certain point, I'm going to tell you we're done. Because when people start to get to the tipping point, you have all these people who, you know, free alcoholic drinks and they're indulging and they're indulging. And, and everybody starts to get to a certain point where then the behavior starts to, you know, become like this. And that, that was it. We were sitting there. We were eating dinner. We were doing pretty good and so on and so forth. And we, you know, got to the point we finished dinner, and she ordered her cannoli, and she's waiting. She said, I ordered your cannoli too. And since she's waiting for her cannolis, and, and sadly, I had to pull the plug right before she got her cannoli. I felt so bad for her. But it just got to a point as I listened, and particularly, you know, listening to two gentlemen, they just started talking, and they had both been heavily drinking, and they were getting to that point where they were, their bravado was coming a lot of bit. And as soon as I got uncomfortable with it, I said, come on, we're going. Sorry, I have to get you another cannoli somewhere else. Just that's it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sticking around for that. I'm not, you know, once people start acting like that, we're getting out of here. People are starting to get led astray and to act foolishly. And it, it just is a, a, a reality. We've sadly, many of us at some point, maybe before we were walking with the Lord, we, we were doing verse one there. And sadly, we still see it, you know, whether we're with family or friends and just those coming under the influence, being led astray by alcohol and not behaving wisely and many negative things transpiring. Verse two, he says, the wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion and whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. So here the idea is a reference to the king, those in places of political and civil authority who have great power, right? They have, they have power in the ancient culture. If you crossed a king, I mean, it was off with your head. 
I mean, they had great power and authority they exercised. They could bring great harm if you just provoke them to anger. And here the proverb is just saying, look, be wise. The wrath of a king can be like the roaring of a lion. You don't want to meet a roaring lion. That's dangerous. That's risky. And he says, whoever provokes him, that is, provokes a king, it's kind of like provoking a lion to anger, and you're basically just sinning against your own soul. In other words, you're just asking for very severe punishment. And the idea of the Proverbs, it is foolish to stir up punishment from a ruler so wise people avoid angering them if possible. I'm not saying we can't disagree with a ruler. I'm not saying we can't disagree with someone who has authority, but don't be foolish and poke them in the eye. Don't provoke them to anger just in your arrogance that you allow yourself. All you're going to do, they're the one with authority. You're not. And all you're going to end up doing is just bringing more problems upon yourself. So he says, wise people don't provoke their anger and then suffer. They do what they can to just kind of defer and, and keep themselves out from under the, the wrath of the king in such a way where they have a peaceful and harmonious relationship to kind of avoid punishment coming against them if all possible. Verse 3, this is a great relationship proverb, conversations, households, marriages, interactions in the job place. It is honorable for a man, he says, verse 3, to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. So again, any person being foolish, the proverb says, can start a fight. Anybody can start a fight. Any fool, the Bible says, can not only start a fight, but any fool can keep a quarrel happening, keep a fight going, whether it's by instigating the fight, instigating the quarrel, any fool can do that. Whether it's keeping a quarrel going by having to just keep saying something back and responding back and getting in the last word and putting another log on the... Any fool can instigate a fight and start a fight and get a quarrel going and keep a quarrel going, but he says the wise person... The wise person, he says, verse 3, recognizes that the honorable thing to do is to stop a fight, is to learn how to not let your pride overtake you in the midst of a quarrel, whether it's an argument, a verbal dispute, or, or, or at any level, the honorable person says, you know what, there are more important things than just being right and proving that I'm right and winning the argument and keeping the quarrel going and damaging our relationship more and making us matter at each other than need be. And then we behave in, you know what? The honorable thing is, you know, I, it takes two people to argue. It takes two people to fight, right? So, so the, the wise person is willing to do the honorable thing at times and to do what they can to stop striving, to stop the fight to do what they can to put an end to it and not striving in the ongoing contention. That's wisdom, and that's the honorable, we might say, taking the higher road that God would direct us to do. Any fool can start a quarrel. The honorable man stops the striving. Verse 4, back to the lazy man. Seems like this guy was around a lot, doesn't it? The lazy man also will not plow because of winter. He will then beg during harvest and have nothing. Now, in that culture in the Palestine area where this is, of course, in reference to the right season to plow up the ground and prepare to then plant during the rainy season would be this time, the winter season. However, obviously, the ground would not be as soft, 
So therefore, it would require an additional measure of effort and some diligence to accomplish what was needed to plow when the ground was harder and it was a little bit colder outside. And he says, the lazy person makes excuses for not being productive or working hard by basically saying, you know, look, it's, it's too hard right now. Or, I mean, it's cold out there. When it gets warmer, I'll go out and do it. And he's just picturing here the idea how one of the indications of laziness, if we want to identify it in our lives at times, is we become good at making well-sounding excuses for not doing what we ought to do. And it's amazing how we can do that. We can make very easy, simple excuses for, well, I mean, I just, now's just not the right time, or I just, I mean, it's, it'd be hard to do that right now, or it's too cold out there, that's difficult. And what God is saying here, if you do that and you allow excuses to drive you because of laziness, it's too difficult, it's too cold, it's too hard, any excuse really can be found when you're not wanting to work. Because I'll tell you this, in the same way somebody would say, I-, I can't work right now because the ground's too hard and it's too cold, it's winter, the next season they would just go, well, I would go out there and plow right now, but now it's raining. And then the next season they go, well, I would go outside, but it's too hot, man. You want me to have a heat stroke out there? It's summer. And see, when, when you and I don't want to work or when a human being wants to be lazy, y- you'll find an excuse continuously for why you don't do the thing that you're supposed to do. That's what the lazy will do. And so he says, be careful of this. If you, if you identify this kind of tendency towards excuse making, it will always lead to not accomplishing what's needed or really what was possible if you would just set aside the excuses and roll up your sleeves and go out there whether it's cold and it's hard or not. And he says, that's the much better approach. Just don't make excuses, be realistic, Go out, take on the burden, do what needs to be done. And he says, by doing that, you won't become a burden to others. Because he says, because the lazy man makes excuses and won't plow because it's winter, he then ends up begging during the harvest because he has nothing. So then what happens? While he was busy making excuses and other people were out being responsible and productive, he then has to be a burden to them and take from them what they rightfully earned because he didn't do his part in responsibility. So again, just that, that caution against the danger of excuse-making and is it kind of a symptomatic thing of laziness with inside of us as people. Verse 5, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Now, the picture here seems to be this idea that Counsel in the heart of man, guidance, direction, right? Counsel tells us what to do, what's the answer to something. He says, counsel in the heart of man, it's kind of like deep water down below the surface. And a man of understanding is able to draw it out. You know, oftentimes the answers needed to solve many situations or maybe know the right thing to do is sometimes a thing where it's just a matter of drawing it out of a person. It's almost as if the answer to know what to do or the solution to their situation or maybe what needs to be done to solve their problem or or to come to their right conclusion, it's buried deep down within there, and it's the wise and the understanding person who through dialogue and asking the right questions and helping them to think through things rather than just telling them what to do kind of is able to recognize, you know, I want to help them to come to this conclusion on their own, to learn how to see it for themselves, 
to be able to recognize, and then maybe through asking some strategic questions and helping them to think, he says, the man of understanding will draw it out of them. And I can almost see this, the idea is almost like through being wise and understanding as a counselor in someone's life, through having a conversation with them, it's almost like through questions you ask and things you say and not just telling them what to do and just, and just directing them, wanting them to learn how to come to conclusions on their own, you kind of just through conversation, you kind of just lower the bucket down into the well of their heart and you just kind of help them bring it up to where ultimately they kind of see it for themselves and they are able to almost kind of self-counsel themselves. And, and I tell you, I think there's almost something complimentary where if you're able to do that for someone and they're able to come to their conclusion and they kind of walk away thinking, well, I don't know why I talked to him. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do now. And I think there's something wonderful in that because guess what? Then you're not as dependent upon a counselor. You're able to learn how to come to your own conclusions and see things. So again, a wise counselor doesn't always just point blank tell somebody what to do. They don't always just give them the answer. It's kind of the old adage, you know, in another sense we talk about you know, don't give a man a fish, teach him how to fish, you know, kind of that same, well, I think this is the same idea. There are times where people need counsel. He's going to say in the, in the verses ahead of us here, plans are established by wise counsel, by wise counsel wage war. I'm not diminishing the value of counsel, but I think there's a way to give counsel sometimes that can really help people grow and learn and come to better decision-making abilities and be able to kind of see things that God wants them to see. So he says here, counsel, it's down in the heart of man, like deep water under the surface, and that man of understanding knows how to draw it out of him, how to lower the bucket down through talking to them and asking them things to bring out of them that counsel that they need to sort of see it for themselves. Verse 6, most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? Boy, that's a searching question. There are most men will proclaim each his own goodness. The idea is it is very common for us as people to view ourselves in a positive light. Most men will each not just recognize in his own perception, but even proclaim his own goodness. So it's common to view ourselves as a fairly good and reliable person. We think we're pretty committed. We think we're pretty trustworthy. I mean, let's just consider the situation with Peter. Remember when Jesus was talking about how all the disciples were going to turn away from him and flee? And you remember right away, what did Peter do? He proclaimed his own good. Lord, far be it from thou to say that. Though they all may betray you, Lord, I'm willing to die with you. In other words, what was Peter doing? He's proclaiming his own goodness. Lord, I mean, I understand. I mean, Judas has always seemed a bit shady. Matthew, he's always reading them math books, and he's into the whole tax political. He's... I understand him. John, he's a young guy. I mean, he's a teenager. He's just, I, you can't depend. But I'm Peter, man. Lord, I, I'm committed to you. I am the rock. I, I, am, not, I am devoted. And, and Lord, I'm willing to die with you. He was proclaiming. He thought he was very committed. And I think he genuinely meant it. He thought he was trustworthy. He thought he would stay on track and be devoted. But sadly, we oftentimes have a much higher view of our dependability and our reliability and our consistency and our own goodness than what we truly display in our actions if we were to step back and get a genuine picture of ourselves. Peter proclaimed his own goodness, but then Peter fell flat on his face, remember? So what he was saying with his mouth did not end up being true about his genuine, good, faithful commitment to the Lord. He ended up denying the Lord 
though he never thought he would. And the Bible says, look, it's easy to say things that are good about ourselves, to believe that we're faithful, committed, devoted. But he says the more rare thing is actually finding, actually finding faithfulness in a person. That is where it's actually displayed in faithful behavior, someone who truly is committed, someone who demonstrates they're reliable. They don't have to talk about being reliable. They just keep showing up all the time. They don't say, oh, I want to do this. I'm going to be devoted to that. And they do it two times, three times, six times. And then gradually over time, the, the reliability, the commitment, the dependability. That's why God says, who can find a faithful man? Someone who shows consistency, continues to portray devotion over, and we often use this statement, stuck with me many, many years now, a long obedience in the same direction. That's faithfulness. A long obedience in the same direction. That is a valuable asset in God's economy of character. God is looking for faithful men, faithful women. That is a great, great asset. You know, we may have very else little to bring to the table, but the truth of the matter is we may not have the same talent as other people. We may not have the skill or the same, you know, knowledge or intellect or intelligence or opportunities. But just like we all have an equal amount of time, we all have the equal opportunity to choose, right, to be faithful to be loyal, to be devoted, to be that, that is a personal choice that we have complete control over. And really, that's a great asset. And that's why God's, he's looking for that. He's looking to find that faithful man. Remember what Jesus said? He's gonna say when he gives out his reward in heaven, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the thing the Lord's looking for. That should be the thing we really try and aspire towards. Lord, help us not to promote with our mouths, but help us to perform by just faithfully being reliable, devoted, dependable in your sight. Verse 7, the righteous man walks in his integrity and his children are blessed after him. So when a man lives right, righteously, operates with integrity, notice it benefits not only him, but the Bible says wisdom realizes that living right and living and operating with integrity, it doesn't just benefit you individually, it actually benefits all those who are connected to you. Here he says in this proverb, the righteous man who walks in his integrity, his children end up being blessed after him. So the idea here is that father choosing to live right and to operate with integrity actually brings blessing upon his children by choosing to live right himself as a man. And by choosing to operate in integrity, those children of a solid father end up being very blessed. And the blessing overflows from the father to the children. That's the idea there. Verse 8, a king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters, the idea literally is winnows or scatters like winnowing wheat and chaff, scatters all evil with his eyes. So again, this reminds us here, verse 8, that the primary role of a king, of a ruler, of a civil leader in a governmental role is to maintain law and order in society and to remove as well as deter evil from the culture. It is a necessary responsibility for those ruling, the Bible teaches, over a society to use their authority to punish evil, to scatter, to rid, to separate from the society like the sifting process, the winnowing of the wheat and the chaff, to sift out from the society 
those who are doing evil, who are rebellious and who are harming innocent victims in society who aren't doing what's evil and trying to do what's good and right. That's what Romans 13 is all about, that those who bear the sword and bear authority, they bear that authority and that power to punish, and they shouldn't be a terror to those who are doing good. They're a terror to those who are doing what's evil because they're supposed to subdue those who are doing evil. They're supposed to scatter and remove those who are evil. They're to operate in a way, a just government, the idea is a just government will root out evil because it cares for the welfare of the society. And so therefore, it won't tolerate evil. It won't allow evil. Instead, authority would be exercised civilly to maintain law and order and to remove evil from the society so that those who want to function in a healthy, peaceful condition, their welfare is respected in that sense. Verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart clean and I am pure from my sin. Well, that's an obvious answer there. No one can, right? Who can say, justly and rightly so, I've made my heart clean? That's impossible, right? Our hearts are not clean. The Bible teaches they're defiled, they're deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, we're sinful. Our hearts cannot be made clean by us. Religious activities can't make us clean. None of us can purge and purify our own sin from our life. Again, this proverb really emphasizes and challenges the foolish idea of any self-help efforts to fix the rottenness of our own inward condition. And yet, psychology and societal ideas and philosophies encourage this idea of self-help among humanity. Oh, you realize you have a problem. You realize you have a struggle. You realize there's tendencies within you that are impure, not good, or not right, well, you got to fix yourself. And so if you do this self-help program, or you follow this self-help course, or you follow these seven steps, you can, you can fix yourself. You can rid yourself from these things. And God's word says that is vain. That's foolish. Any thought that self-help efforts can somehow change things within us is a path of foolishness. Wise people understand, I need help from a source outside of myself. I need help from God. I need God to not only forgive me and cleanse me, but I need God's power. And the only way my heart can become clean is if I cry out, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Supernaturally, by your spirit, God, change my heart. Supernaturally, change me. I can't change myself. And Lord, purge me with hyssop and cleanse me by the blood of Jesus. It's the only way that, that I can experience such. So the wise person comes to terms sooner rather than later with their own depravity and the recognition of their utter human weakness and realizes instead wisdom humbly seeks God's help for any change and self-help is completely worthless. Verse 10, diverse weights and diverse measures. They are an abomination both alike, the Bible says, to the Lord. Now the picture here again, as we talked about before, diverse weights and diverse measures. And that day in the market, they used the balance scales. If any of you remember that from like back in you know, science class, maybe where you, you had the scales with the balance, you know, you balance out on each side and you put so much of this and so much of that. Well, typically what they would do to cheat one another in the marketplace is they'd put product on one side and they'd put weights on the other side. And so either they would use weights that were hollow 
so that the weight would be light, and so then therefore they would have to keep putting more product on, and so there's a way of cheating, or they would do the opposite. They would use weights that would say one pound, but the weight would really be two pounds. And so they'd say you're getting two pounds of product when the reality was you, know, you, you were getting cheated out because the weight was additionally heavy. So uh, this was just a way of unethical business practices and kind of cheating one another in the marketplace here. And notice he says these kind of activities Unethical business practices, cheating, robbing, both alike, are an abomination to the Lord. You know, again, that's a strong term, an abomination to the Lord. You know, often we may not be so quick to think that God is that disgusted by unethical business practices, but he really is. When people rob and cheat and take advantage of one another and harm people, manipulate one another in business transactions, God says that, that's an abomination, very strong word. It disgusts the Lord. And I think perhaps one of the reasons why is the majority of us in humanity, right? We're not living large. We're working hard and grinding out life and trying to pay our bills. And then once in a while, we got to do business transactions, whether it's with a contractor or buying this or purchasing a car. And, and, and so Ripping people off can really have a major detrimental effect upon their life, right? And so God says, I don't like that. That's disgusting. People are just trying to get by. Be equitable. Be fair. Don't be ripping people off, God says. Verse 11, even a child, he says, is known by his deeds whether what he does is pure and right. Now, interesting proverb. You almost have to kind of grasp what he's saying there, even a child is known by his deeds or by his behavior. The idea there is we learn a lot about our child by the way that they act, that's their deeds, by the way that they behave. That's how we can truly tell what is genuine about their own condition. And he says, even a child will be known, you'll know the true condition of your child by their behavior by the way they conduct themselves, whether what he does is pure and right. I think this is important and a wise principle, particularly for parents, because parents always want to think the best of their kids, right? And because of that love we have for our kids and the aspiration to want to be proud of them, there's this natural inclination out of that love and emotional connection to our children that kind of like the man who always proclaims his own goodness, we always want to think what's best of our children. And so God says to us here, listen, don't allow emotional persuasion and your own heart of love toward your, your child be something that blinds you to what is truly correct about your child's genuine condition. God says, if you want to know what is true about your child's condition, just look at their behavior. Just look at their conduct. And by their conduct, you can tell their true genuine condition. Don't because of your, you know, empathy or your love for, oh, I just, and then we start making excuses because we don't want to believe certain things that may be negative about our children sometimes. And God says, you're going to get misguided in the process here. God says, if you want a genuine real evaluation, don't let yourself be blinded by your emotional connection. The reality of their condition will be evidenced by their deeds. A child's behavior, God said, is what we know is really true about their condition. You know, we've often said before, fruit doesn't lie, right? The fruit of a tree reveals the genuine nature of the DNA inside of that tree. So if a parent wants to know, hey, where is my kid really at? 
What's really going on in their life? Look at how they live. Look at their behavior. That is the clearest indication. God says, if you want to be wise in relating to them and really know where they're at, God says, take an honest inventory, not what you think or feel in your emotions. Look at their behavior. That gives you a clear picture of where they're really at in their life right now. Verse 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. So again, the idea is that you know, it is a gift from the Lord to have eyesight, to be able to hear your blessings from the Lord. The amazing human capacities to hear and see are a gift from God. And so therefore, they're a blessing we should appreciate. And of course, if they're a gift from God, we should use those things in good stewardship and manage what we listen to and what we see in a way that's pleasing to God. Verse 13, do not love sleep, he says, lest you come to poverty Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. So again, a degree of sleep is a necessary thing for health. The Bible says he gives his beloved sleep. And so it is necessary to get sleep to a degree to be refreshed so the body can repair and restore. And it's unwise not to sleep. But God says it is also very unwise to love sleep (laughs) too much. And when we start to enjoy and love sleep too much, beware of loving sleep more than you should because God said it will lead to loss and to lack. So God says the key is if you're starting to like sleep a little bit too much, open your eyes and go out and then you'll be satisfied with bread. In other words, God would say, wake up and go to work. Wake up and go to work. Wake up and go to school. Stop loving sleep too much, God says. Get up. The only way to be productive in life, to accomplish anything, to have what we adequately need, is you got to get up and you got to go out and do something. You can't just sleep around and lay around. If you love sleeping too much, God says, be careful. That's a path towards problems. Verse 14, it is good for nothing. So now we're back at the marketplace again, the business transaction. It's good for nothing, cries the buyer. But when he is gone his way, then he boasts. I've always loved this proverb, just... Really, again, God understands humanity so well, doesn't he? <laughs> it's good for nothing, says the buyer. So now we're talking about not the seller cheating somebody. Now we're talking about the crooked buyer here. Even the buyer can be crooked. So sometimes in business transactions, buyers can what? They overly criticize what they're purchasing, or they overly nitpick to purposely try and diminish the perceived worth of the lower purchase price that they want to get in the transaction, right? I mean, we've done this before. I mean, if I can illustrate, so you're selling a car, right? And you're selling a car, and so, so the person's looking at it, and they, oh, I, I see there's a few threads missing in the seat there. I notice there's a little, you know, dime-sized rust area in the back, and, and, and I notice the tires don't seem like they're, and, and just, you know, little by little, they just keep pointing out this, and I notice there's some scratches around where the key goes in. Well, well, correct. That's why I'm selling this for $3,000 and not $30,000 because the car is 18 years old, right? I mean, and and, and you, it's that kind of thing that goes on there. People, they nitpick this and they're overcritical of that and they're, they're just, oh, it's good for nothing. It's good. And, and they're just doing the whole process, right? Because they're trying to give a perception. It's not worth anything. There's no value to it. So they're basically trying to convince that you should sell it for a lower price in some way and they become unfair and manipulative by being overly critical of what they're trying to purchase. And then as soon as they purchase it, what do they do? They walk away. Dude, I got this really great deal on this car. 
Or what do we say sometimes? Man, I got this thing for a steal. You sure did. Because you didn't pay a fair price for it. You stole it from that poor person. (laughs) Because you were being overly critical and kind of nitpicking every little thing instead of giving a fair value and an honest transaction. Look, they bartered constantly in the ancient culture. If you go over to Israel today, I've been there once before, or certain cultures, they barter over everything. I mean, you want to have a panic attack the time you're done buying a loaf of bread in the marketplace. I mean, they, they barter over, and some people love that stuff. Other people hate it. You know, other people look, I can't wait to get back to America. You walk in a store, everything has a little sticker on it. You can either afford it or you can't. Nice and simple. You don't even talk about it. But they would do this all the time. And so God says, look, be careful, you know. And I think the idea here is if you're the seller, beware of this kind of reality with certain buyers. So if you're selling something and you got a buyer who's kind of doing this kind of thing, you know, and they're nitpicking and overly critical, and they're ready to just walk away afterwards and boast about this great deal they got because they convinced you to keep coming down and down and down and down on your price in an unfair way, God says, that might be a person you say, hey, you know what? This actually isn't for sale anymore. Well, I thought it was. Well, it is, but it's not for sale for you. It's for sale for somebody else <laughs> that's going to have an honest conversation with me about the you know, genuine worth of what, what's being trying to sold here. Verse 15, there is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. So again, things of great worth, gold, rubies, but he says often an undervalued thing is the lips of someone who's able to impart knowledge. God says sometimes that is just as valuable as a precious jewel. Very interesting. Often it's easier to find wealth and precious jewels than it is to find someone who could just speak some sound knowledge into your life. So God here kind of gives this implication. You know, a wise person realizes if you can find someone who can impart knowledge into your life and speak words of instruction into your life, God says don't undervalue that person. That's a really valuable asset if you have someone who can speak with lips of knowledge to help instruct you. It's like a precious jewel, rare and very valuable. Verse 16, take the garment of one who is a surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge when it is for a seductress. Now, that might sound a little complex there. The basic idea of the proverb is wise when dealing, we might say there, with strangers or a seductress, that is someone who can seduce people to protect yourself and your interests through taking, he says, a pledge or surety. The idea is some form of collateral so that you're not cheated. So if you're dealing with someone who's a stranger that you don't know or someone who you sense could be good at seducing and misguiding, God says, don't be foolish. Protect your own interests. Ensure yourself to be safe. Wisdom teaches, you know, get the deposit, we might say. Have a contract. Make sure that you're protecting your own interests. Don't just trust the good intentions of someone if you don't know them. Just be wise and prudent in your actions. Verse 17, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward, what a picture, his mouth will be filled with gravel. So those who use deceptive practices to gain for themselves, they may enjoy the taste of that for a time. It may be very enjoyable to them, but eventually if someone has used deceit, that enjoyable experience will go away because eventually when that deception is exposed, then things crumble and it becomes a miserable experience. And I don't think anybody likes a mouthful of gravel. 
That's a picture there for you. So <laughs> it may be sweet to cheat somebody on the front end, but eventually when things fall apart and you're chewing a mouth of miserable gravel, you'll, you'll recognize that was a really poor choice to deceive somebody. Verse 18, plans are established by wise counsel, and by wise counsel, wage war. So again, we come back to this idea here. Plans, again, can be solidified to ensure maximum success. The Bible says one of the best ways to do that is how? Utilize the benefit of counsel. You know, we've seen this many times. Proverbs talking about with the well-advised is wisdom. There's safety, we've read, remember, there's safety, protection in the multitude of counselors. So here God says, do you have plans? Great. Do you have ideas? Do you want your plans to be solidified? Do you want to ensure maximum success? He says, then utilize counsel when you're making your plans. Bounce your ideas off of others. Talk to a few people who are wise individuals. Seek out input. Get their advice. Hey, here's what I got a plan to do. Here's what I think I'm going to do. Here's my approach. And he says, so seek out some counsel, and you'll find you'll have much more success in your plans if you've sought out counsel. And he says, by wise counsel, wage war. Now think of the picture there, waging war. Waging war is a huge responsibility, right? That's a very serious thing. As well as it's not just a huge responsibility, it's something that matters a lot, that is hard, and has a degree of risk. So God says, just like when you would wage war, it would be good to get wise counsel in the same way when you and I are doing something, listen, that undertakes a huge responsibility, or it involves a very serious matter, or it includes something that could be considerably risky, or it involves something that in some way really matters a lot or is going to be really hard, God says, just like when you'd wage a war, get some wise counsel. And notice, not just counsel, wise counsel. Choose your counselors correctly. And he says, if you do that, much better chance you're not going to suffer harm and defeat, but instead you'll have victory and your plans will succeed. And that's certainly what we all want. We'll finish off for there for tonight. Let's stand together.